I speak to lots and lots and lots of people I can't even tell you, um, famous and whatever. But when I saw you guys, I told my team I'm speaking to these young brothers uh, in the US and this is what motivates me. This, not the other stuff, not the big CNN and uh, big uh, actors and actresses, whatever it is, all the big stage stuff. This is what motivates me, you guys because you're the next generation and seeing the youth, seeing the zeal, the love, the care, the passion that seems to be lost in so many other places. You guys have got a, you've got a battle in front of you. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I pray, equips you physically, morally, uh, emotionally, financially in every possible way to be able to, to take that on and to carry the deen in every nook of cranny in this, in this dunya. Because in the end, that's وَمَا عَلَيْنَا إِلَّا الْبَلَاغِ Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome back to the Realist Podcast in the Dunya, the Three Muslims Podcast. Today we're joined with another very special guest, Brother Muazzam Beg. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, dear brothers, and it's an absolute pleasure to be on here on your show. Habibi, it's a pleasure to have you. So for those who don't know about you, your story, who you are, let's just start with a, a brief uh, introduction to who you are. Yeah, my name is uh, Mazen Beg. I'm a uh, resident and a citizen of the United Kingdom, Great Britain, uh, born and raised here. My parents originally from Pakistan. Um, I am known mostly as a former Guantanamo prisoner who is the outreach director for the advocacy group CAGE, which campaigns against war on terrorism policies. Um, Guantanamo was just three years of my life, um, and there have been decades before and after that, and there's much to discuss around that. But suffice to say um, that the past 20 years, and we're just approaching now 20 years since the uh, anniversary of the beginning of the first prisoner sent to Guantanamo, I have been uh, uh, either a prisoner or fighting against the concept of imprisoning people, primarily Muslims, without charge or trial. Uh, was something that I endured. Um, I saw people beaten to death. I saw people tortured. I saw... I endured it myself and uh, alhamdulillah have been campaigning for those people who have been in that situation as i said since alhamdulillah may allah reward you for your work so just a quick side note for that campaign and the work that you do if our viewers or anyone who sees this video wants to support that work how can they do so yeah please go to cage.ngo uh, c-a-g-e.ngo there you will find all our campaign work whether it's on guantanamo whether it's on state level islamophobia whether it's on various laws and legislations that have been passed that uh, direct, that affect the Muslim community, whether it's here in the US, France, Austria, wherever, um, we are challenging not just not just state level law, but also bringing out the stories and the voices of the people who have been uh, subjected to those violations of the laws. That is amazing, mashallah. That is amazing. So, all the viewers, you can find the link in the description. Inshallah, head over there. Um, do what you can, support the work, spread the news, inshallah. So, Brother Muazzam, let's start with your story in particular. How did this all start? Was it just one day you found out that, uh, you know, they were watching you or were you just kind of like dragged out of your home one day? Uh, no, I mean, I, I expected something, but, but of course nobody expected what happened after 9-11. Maybe many of your viewers or young may not even know the detail about that. So let me just go into a kind of bit of the background story. Um, I was, I think, around the time, um, you know, in my late 20s, mid to late 20s. I, I'm, I'm, you know, close to 54 now. But this was before 9-11. I had been working on a project to build a school in Afghanistan. At the time, the Taliban was in power, which is important because they're back in power again. But at the time, they were in power and they, the demonization of them had started, but not really, it wasn't so bad. And one of the things that was said about them, like they say now, is that they're not allow, allowing female education. So... Uh, when I learned that some of the brothers that I knew were helping to set up a school in Afghanistan for girls, 
I wanted to be part of that because I wanted to break that stereotype. And I know from Islamic history that, uh, as the Prophet ﷺ said, that seeking knowledge is an obligation on every Muslim, that means men and women. Um, so I knew this was very important. So I, I, I got up, I left with my family, my wife, my children, and with a plan to go and live in Afghanistan to, for a while, to open this school, to run it, to be part of it, and to try to gain the benefit from it. And at the same time, live in an Islamic and a Muslim society that was quite different to here. Uh, when, of course, the 9-11 attacks happened, which was about several months after I'd arrived, um, things started to change, but slowly. The, the invasion didn't start immediately, it started several weeks after. And of course, Osama bin Laden and his organization were based in Afghanistan, but in the other part of the country that was really connected to us. Um, I was in the capital, Kabul. Uh, but then the US cruise missile starter strikes started, um, and they started to land in and around the area, the capital. And I saw them at night come and land and smash into the ground. It looked like fireworks, but with a massive earth-shaking sh earth shock, ear-splitting ear um, the windows of, of my house and all of the houses on the, same, on the same road smashed and cracked. And, and uh, you knew that something was going to happen, and it started to happen. And that was just the introduction. Uh, shortly after that, they started to drop bombs in the daytime because the Taliban didn't have anti-aircraft capability to hit American aircraft and so forth. So they started to bomb in the daytime, and that felt like earthquakes. Massive bombs, 15,000-pound bombs that really shook the, the earth underneath your feet, even though they were dropped miles away. So it was under this, eventually, me and my wife and kids and everybody evacuated, eventually got to Pakistan after a very long, drawn-out, difficult, painful journey um, in which people died, people were wounded, people suffered all sorts of injuries, uh, but alhamdulillah, we were safe. And eventually, I made it to a house. I have relatives in Pakistan. That's where my parents originated from. And uh, on the night of the 31st of January, 2002, now this is several months have passed, um, I, there was a knock on my door, and I was in my house in Islamabad in the capital of Pakistan. I opened the door, my wife and kids sleeping inside, and there's a group of people standing right in front of me. No uniforms, no ID badges, nothing. One of them puts a gun straight to my head. He pushes me into the forecourt, onto the floor in my house, in, in, in the forecourt. They then jumped on top of me, shackled my hands behind my back, shackled my legs, and just before they put a hood over my head, I saw them walk into the room where my family is, and I said, please don't go in there, and then that was it. That's the last time I saw. I didn't even see my wife that night. I, I didn't see my kids. My kids were all young at the time, but young, in, uh, but old enough to remember, old enough to, to make visualizations and remember to this day, uh, now that they were grown adults, exactly what happened. They carried me into the back of this vehicle, in the back of this vehicle. So I thought thus, I thought thus far that these are kind of bandits. They've come to, to rob me. They've come to take my money because I'm, I'm a Westerner in Pakistan. And, Poor countries, mm -hmm. people do that. But then when I was lying in the back, two guys turned around and they looked at me. And they were dressed like Pakistanis, they were wearing, you know, Afghani type caps and shawar kameez, you know, the, the, but they were white. They were, you could see, I could see in the faces of the guys, got, some had gone red from the, from the heat. And they looked at me and spoke in American accents and it was obvious these guys are not Pakistanis. And they said, you can either answer our questions here or in Guantanamo. And Guantanamo was already open by that time, and the shocking images of people in orange jumpsuits, kneeling, with blacked out uh, goggles and ear defenders and face masks was already around the world. So when they said that, I said, I realized this is very serious. And then one of them, he gets this pair of handcuffs and he, sh he said, you know who gave me these handcuffs? And I'm lying there in the back of the seat on the, in, the, on the, uh, on, in the prone position thinking, I really don't care who gave you these handcuffs because I want to know how the hell to get out of this situation. And he says, the wife of one of the survivors, uh, of one of the victims, rather, of the September 11 attacks, a police officer himself, it's his wife that gave him the cuffs. And he said, I've been sent to catch the people who did it. And you're one of them. And I thought, yeah, you are. And I said it to him at that straight, I said, wouldn't she think you're stupid for catching the wrong guy? And that was it. they drove me off to this secret location, held there by the Pakistanis for several weeks, and then off into U.S. military custody at the Pakistani airbase. So he said, this was just the beginning. This is just the starter of being in U.S. custody. And it becomes brutal. It becomes more and more brutal as we, as we go along. And I can tell you in different aspects. I just don't want to be, keep talking without you saying something. Um, 
but essentially, my dear brothers and sisters who are watching, this was an odyssey, it was a journey. And this journey was about to teach me things about my life, about my faith, about my connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that I had no idea. I, I had no idea I was capable of. Um, and inshallah, I will describe that to you as we go along. Inshallah. Fahd, you want to jump in quickly or? Man, I'm just, I'm, I'm not saying much because I'm, I'm, I'm listening more and I, I really want to, you know, really get into the, the meat of the issue and the journey. Um, but before we go on, I had some questions. So your family at this time, I know, you know, at that time, you had no way of contacting them, communicating with them, uh, or, you know, so on and so forth. So what did you do? When was the next time that you ever got a hold of them? Was it after all the years of being in prison and finally coming back? Or was there any way for you to get in touch with them in the meantime? Uh, that's a very good question, SubhanAllah, for, for, for anybody that is a father, anybody that is a parent, these are the most important things that you feel, you do feel, yeah. but I'm going to tell you something, please do remind me, there's something even more important, something more important than your family, okay, and, and I'll give you an example of that, but uh, at this point, you do think, what's, where's my family, Did they, are they in custody, are, are they holding them, I just don't know, uh, so the, for the first seven to eight months, I had no idea, absolutely no idea what happened to my family um but there is one thing that i did do which again this is from the qadr of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when the police or the, these whoever they were i didn't know who they were at the time they were the isi the pakistani intelligence with the cia i found out later when they took me to this secret kind of location first i put, I put my hand on my pocket and realized i got my phone so these guys hadn't searched me. And that's what made me believe even more that somehow these, these really, this really is not the police. Police would search you, right? Um, the phone was still in my pocket. And there's still some charge. It was like about one, one bar still left of, of the battery. So I picked up the phone and I called two people. I called my friend who lived close to where my family was. And I said, please go and check on them and said that they're okay. And which, which he said he would. Then the second person I called was my father in, in, in England, in the UK. And I said, I was whispering down the phone, Dad, I've been kidnapped. I actually said, Dad, I've been kidnapped. And he was shocked. He didn't know what to do. And, and I said, but there's Americans here. I've been kidnapped by Americans. You know, I'm saying it like this. And I, my dad had the sense of mind to, to I think I learned later, to, to call lawyers and to start that. And he began his campaign from that moment, from that moment. Um, <laughs> but for me, that's it. The phone battery died. I didn't want these guys to know that I've got a phone, so I broke it up. And then when they took me to the toilet, because there's no toilet in my cell, um, I, I just threw it down the toilet. And, uh, you know, the other thing that happened, which I don't talk about much, is I actually did plan an escape. And the escape was that on my window, there were bars that had been screwed in. It was, it was not a cell like the others. This was just like a room. And they put bars on the window and... I had a buckle on my belt that if I, I pulled it out, I could get the edge and, and put it into the screws. And I took out every screw of every bar. And my plan was, my plan in my mind, was to take the bars out in the middle of the night when I knew the guards were not patrolling for this very short period of time. I've worked it out after a couple of weeks. And then I would get out the window and I would escape, jump over the wall. There's a guard sitting with a, with a gun, but I'd get over and then I'd run, I had, I had no shoes on, I'd run barefoot, get into a taxi, get me driven somewhere, run off, not pay the fare because I had no money. And uh, um, then I would try to get to somebody somewhere. That was my plan in my mind. But strangely enough, one day they took me for interrogation, brought me back. Somebody came up, looked at the window, saw, that they saw, saw something there, and then they took me into a different place where the windows were totally sealed. And that was the escape plan all done. SubhanAllah, SubhanAllah. Now, I, I know all of the viewers are definitely, you know, very keen on knowing what happens next in your story. But you did remind us to, uh, you know, tell you that there's something more important than family. So what would that be? You know, it's hard. It's hard to say this, right? But I was just speaking to a friend of mine, Shakar Ahmed, who himself was in Guantanamo for 14 years. I remember I was only there for three. But we, we, were, both, we were both very good friends. And we lived together in the same house in Afghanistan. We worked on the same projects together. He ended up in Guantanamo for 14 years. I was released for three years. I was a British citizen. He was not. That's the difference. Um, he's here now. I was with him just yesterday. And there's something an American soldier, he said to me, you know, would bring the soldier was crying when he told me this. The soldier had tears in his eyes. So he asked me if I knew this guy, uh, Shaka. 
I said, yeah, he's my friend. And we were in separate cells. I never saw him again. I never saw him in Guantanamo. We were just in cells. He said, you know, that guy's amazing. He said, um, he, he said, please, can you bring me a photograph? Because they, don't, they didn't let him have, keep his photographs of his family in his cell. They were outside in a box. So he said, could you please just let me see the photograph of my kids? And his kids were similar to my age, very, really young. And this had been after close to a year and a half since he'd been in custody. He showed him the picture, showed the soldier the picture. There were a lot of good, decent soldiers, I have to say. There's lots of good American soldiers. So he showed this soldier, he said, look, these kids, these are my children. This is so-so, this is Abdullah, this is Johanna, this is Faris, so-so, etc. One of his children was born after he was in custody. So he never saw that kid until he was 15 years old, first time in his life. And I, they were, his son and my son were born at the same time, but my son, Ayub, um, I saw him only when he was three years old. So you see the difference, right? So he looks at this picture and he says, you know, these kids are more beloved to me than anything in my life. Then what the, what the soldier said next is what brought tears to the soldier's eyes. He said, but I have to tell you something. There's something even more beloved to me than these children. And he said, that is me calling you to the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now this soldier was a blonde haired, blue eyed, big bulging muscles, probably a Christian. And the soldier understood the, the power of his words and what he meant, the depth of what he meant. That me calling you to the deen of Islam is more beloved to me than these children who I love more than my life itself. And the other part of this greater story, there, there are many soldiers in Guantanamo who took the Shahada. Some in Guantanamo, some outside, black, white, Hispanic, male, female. We can talk about that if, if there's time. But it was important that I get this out to you guys because I don't often talk about those details. Sometimes people just want to hear about, oh, what happened in the story? But there's so many layers, so many parts of it. And when I'm speaking to young brothers like you, I like to get those parts out rather than to just tell a story chronologically. Um, so yeah, it was that, that thing, more beloved than your most beloved children um, that people, people would give their lives for. Mm. Subhanallah, this might be a side question, but I'm wondering when you when you do a lot of these podcasts and interviews, why why do these nuances not come up most of the time? Is it because people just want to prioritize like what happened and, and that's what usually gets clicks and views or what is it? it? It depends who you're speaking to, right? So, you know, now I'm speaking to a lot of media. I've just been speaking to the BBC today. They don't care about that stuff. They stop, but they don't care. They don't care about it at all. Right. So it depends who. And that's why when I speak to guys like you, who I know you have a different take on things and you're doing it for a different reason, um, I, I find it important to, to, to bring these things out. And it just because there's so much over this period of time, like there's so much has happened. Um, and certain people, like I'm looking at your faces, you're triggering those responses within me right as I speak. If I was speaking to somebody else, probably I'd be talking about a, a different aspect. So this all ha has to do with a reflection. Al-mu'minu mira akhi, that the Prophet said that the, that the believer is the mirror of his brother. SubhanAllah. So in regards to this soldier, you said that 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 part really touched him. Hearing that from the brother really touched him. Did that soldier end up accepting Islam? I don't know. I don't know if he did. But I just remember that he's the one who told me. That soldier is the one that told me the story. Right? Yes. I wouldn't have. He's the one who told me. See, Shakir is my friend. But Shakir mm -hmm. never told me that story ever. He's never told me that story even since he's returned. But you see, you learn things about other people sometimes about your closest friends that you you never even hear from them wow That's and i'll tell you another me. story now that we're at it shakir once and this is really you know when i heard this again i started to cry because i was imagining him i'd not seen him since we lived together i just heard he's in custody and i was in interrogation and the inter this was very brutal in kandahar they stripped us naked they'd beaten us they tortured us they ripped off our clothes they spat upon us they brought dogs to salivate over us and taking photographs of us and Shaka, he's got beautiful, long, lovely hair and beard, and they shaved it all off like a sheep. And they did the same to me and to everybody. And in this, I'm in an orange jumpsuit, I'm hands behind my back, I'm soldiers pushing me down, shouting, screaming, cursing um, in the middle of this place that they've built just by, by Kandahar Airport. It's freezing cold. And they, you know, you, you hear the sound of the gun being cocked, um, and, and it's right against your head and against your back and all of that. The attempt to terrify you. Now, a soldier, I'm on my knees here, and a soldier says to me, hey, you, do you know Shakira, do you know Shakirama? I said, yeah, he's, he's my friend. He said, 
that guy was just in this in here, just in here before you. And you know, I, I'd heard that he'd been taken in custody, but I didn't know. And uh, he said, you know, that guy's. I don't know what to say about that guy. I said, why? He said, because he's here kneeling, kneeling here, with his hands cuffed and his legs cuffed, and and you know, we're standing here, interrogating everybody here, and he's telling me about Islam. He's telling me about becoming a Muslim. He's telling me about what this religion is about. He's telling me how you've got it all wrong, that this faith isn't about death and destruction. It's about life and preservation. It's about um, worshipping and giving that duty of worship, the due rights to the one who created you. And you as an American, you understand that more than a lot of people in Europe. So I don't want you to get it wrong. And Siakra told me this. I asked him about it yesterday. I said, why did you do this? He said, because I lived in America before this happened. And I know, this is what he says, and it's shocking to hear this. I know American people are not bad people, generally. This is a guy who's been imprisoned and tortured for 14 years. He said, but there is a great deal of ignorance. And the antidote to ignorance is knowledge. So for the first many years, I tried to, even in the hardest of circumstances, say that I'm going to give them um, knowledge. Even though he was also the leader of the protests and the hunger strikes in Guantanamo, he was a... Mm -hmm. He said, for the first several years, just I'm going to give them that one. That's it. And, and personally, I'd rather speak to you about these these things than just about my my boring old story. Well, it's not boring for, for some people, but, but you yeah. know, oh, this happened and this happened chronologically. Because these are the gems, really, honestly, that get missed out. And so uh, I'm, I'm glad they, they're coming out, inshallah, now. Yeah, subhanAllah. I... Uh... I'm currently in a, I was in a placement at a, at a hospital for a couple months and I used to go back and forth. It's like a one hour drive, right? So it was like two hours every single day. And I remember for a good moment in time when we were arranging these, uh, this interview with you, I was just listening to a bunch of podcasts that you were in. And I've never heard these stories because all of the stories that I used to hear on those commutes were like, you know, what actually happened, different accounts. Um, the lady that you mentioned uh, that hit you up on Facebook, she was a Guantanamo, um, I believe, guard. And she, she took her shahada, alhamdulillah. And these were the stories that we never heard, the ones that you're talking about now. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm all for it. You know, Rami, what about you? Yeah, alhamdulillah. Habibi, this is your episode. We keep it completely unfiltered. Anything you want to talk about, this is your show. And uh, yeah, so, so let me let me let me yeah let me you know start talking about different things. Subhanallah, is that you know one of the great the, the amazing things. So they took me off into the secret location, held me there, and then for a while, for two three weeks, then they handed me over to to the Americans, to the military. You probably heard the story about when I said uh, how I prayed in, in custody, right? So uh, yeah, so all of that stuff happened in the brutalization. So let's move past all of that, and now I'm held in in with all these other prisoners. Now these prisoners are from all over the Muslim world. And not even, some not even from the Muslim world, some from Europe, some uh, Chinese Uyghurs, though that, that, sorry, that's wrong to say that. They are from the Muslim world. Uh, it's the, the China has, has imposed itself on their land and tried to force them. But there were Uyghurs, there were people from the Maldives Islands, people from Australia, from uh, Canada. Young boy, Amar Khadr, you might have heard of him. Um, he, he was 14 at the time when they first brought him into custody. And I don't know if you know the story. But it is really one of the most shocking. And he wasn't. So this something that you, you should know is that they were lots of children stroke young adults from 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all of these ages um, in U U.S. custody. They were brought in, uh, tortured. Omar Khadr, he, was a he is a Canadian citizen. He was held in Guantanamo from the age of 15 until he's 25. And eventually he went to Canada and the Canadian government compensated him and the, the, the Prime Minister Trudeau apologized to him. But not after this kid, I, to describe to you what he'd gone through, they brought him in when I was there in Bagram. So they moved me then from a place called Kandahar, where I was held in the first few weeks, and to a place called Bagram. Bagram was recently taken over by the Taliban again. And um, it, it's just shocking because this was a place where so much abuse happened. And this was probably for me one of the worst places. I was held there for one year. And in that year, many things happened. You know, they, they, I saw two people murdered. I saw one prisoner kicked to death, punched to death, because the prisoner soldiers found it amusing that every time they kicked him, he said, Allah, Allah. His name was Dilawar. He was a taxi driver. His hands were tied to the top of the cage. 
right in front of myself and they kicked him repeatedly like Thai boxing style kicks to the to, to the to his thigh uh, and because they found it amusing oh look every time this we're kicking he says Allah Allah kick him again he's kicking him again kick him again and they kept on kicking him over a hundred times until his leg um, the blood clotted and uh, it caused his heart to, to have a heart attack and the autopsy report said that if he'd survived he would have required amputation <clears throat> so in this horrific place uh, you, you know there were terrible things happening and they were amazing thing happened so we couldn't play pray salah in jamaa you weren't allowed to do salah in jamaa hmm. right it, they were, we were in a cell where there's like about 10 10 prisoners in each cell we started to pray together and then you know may allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hold him to account this egyptian guy who's working for the americans he says don't let these guys pray in jamaa because when they the imam when he's in front He's not really reciting the Quran. He's talking to them. He's telling them things. So because of this, and I have to describe him, I don't know what other way, way to describe him is as Munafiq, uh, would say such a thing, uh, they stopped us praying. And when we would pray together, they'd come and storm into our cells, kick us in the middle of sajda, put their boots on us in the middle of sajda. And I saw one prisoner, like uh, a, a soldier saying to him, I'm your God here, you should be praying to me. You should be kneeling to me. And so this was like one of this these times and moments where these are the very things you hear about in the history of Islam, that uh, Muslims were forced to bow, but they would bow to none but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the stories of Ammar bin Yasir in the Quran, that even if those who did, their hearts were filled with Iman. Um, but nonetheless, all of this, so there were prisoners from everywhere, the whole world, all gathered in this, in this experiment center. And this is even before we got to Guantanamo. And uh, so after having gone through all of this, I was actually looking forward to, to, to go to Guantanamo. Just imagine, right, as a Muslim, and you guys know this, and again, this is not something that everybody would understand, but they gave us one bottle, one 500 milliliter bottle of water a day to drink from, to drink. That's the only water you got. You have no water for wudu, you have no water for ghusl, you have no water for anything but to drink. You drink it, and if you want to use it for wudu, you've got nothing to drink. So you take your choice. So what do you do now in this situation? What do you do? So imagine, I'm in this situation for one year. So I don't do wudu for one year. Ghusl and so forth. Allah goes back to what we know from the deen. This deen was born in a desert. And if you don't find water, then do dry ablution. And it's done. You know, it's, it's but, it. That's but it. you got you got 0.5 liters a day just for drinking. Yeah, that's it. Just for drinking. So all you do then is you do tayyamam. You learned it. In fact, I did tayyamam for so long that by the time I got to Guantanamo and there was water in the cells, I actually forgot the, 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 the kind of the sequence of wudu. I forgot it for a while. I couldn't remember. Do I do the, the mouth first or the nose or the nose first? Because that, none of that features. So all of these basic things, uh, Ramadan comes, it goes. You don't know. You don't know it's Ramadan. Wow. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you, uh, um, you know, uh, that you fast from sunrise, just before sunrise to sunset. What if you don't know when it's sunrise? What if you don't know when it's sunset? What if you don't know the weather of Qibla? What if you don't know the prayer times? What if you can't see outside? You don't know when it, you don't know whether it's light or dark. What if you have no food to open your fast? What if they bring you your food four hours or five hours after the fast? What do you do? And despite all of these conditions, we fasted. We tried to pray. And the best day for me, despite all of that, we used to get punished for reciting the Quran aloud. When I say punished, if they hear you talking loud or saying anything loud, they take you to the front of the cell, they tie your hands above the cage like that, suspended above your head, and you're on your toes, and you're there left for hours, sometimes days. That's for reciting the Quran. Despite that, and one of the most blessed times for me was that I, I memorized Surah Al-Baqarah in that situation. And uh, for me, it was a big thing. It was a big thing because before that, I'd only memorized parts of the last years. So, you know, again, I have to say to you that these places are testing. They may be testing ground for the American uh, military to see how they can break us. 
but it's also a testing ground for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to see uh, to see who is patient from amongst you who will stand the test who will remember who he is who will remember that we are we are our deen is the inher we inherit the story, the lives, the, the traditions, the struggles of the prophets, and not a single prophet came that wasn't tested with his deen, you know? I'm, I'm completely speechless, subhanAllah. As, as a Muslim who, who grew up in the West, lived in the West, and, and sees the, the, the problems that Muslims face nowadays in the West, they're, like, they're literally nothing, subhanAllah. And to hear stories like this, well, it's, it's so shocking. Like all I can think about is the Sahaba, radiallahu anhu. I can only think about like Balal, radiallahu anhu, and the Sahaba that that struggled for the sake of Islam and, and, and hearing. What was the name of the brother that you, you told the story? So, of? The, the, so the the young brother, his name is Omar Khadr. Omar mm -hmm. Khadr. He's from Canada. When yeah. also I forgot to mention when they first brought him into custody, right? He had lost his eye. He's fourteen, just turned fifteen. Uh, they had a gunshot wound right from his chest like just above his chest i don't know how he survives you do a search on his name and you look a picture of his it looks like he's dead so they got him from this compound in afghanistan which they'd blown up totally everybody was killed uh, except for him and just to try to finish him off somebody fired a shotgun uh like point blank and literally he had an exit wound here and you know to this day he's damaged but if you look at him and you hear him and you, you see interviews with him. I just did a talk with him yesterday. His smile is infectious. The way he speaks, his iman, his, his uh, akhlaq, his mannerism of how he speaks, he is absolutely blows people away, really, literally, from his... Um, he, he became a man. He never went to school in, in, other than Guantanamo. Guantanamo was the only school he ever went to. Um, and, I mean, yeah, he did go to school prior to that, but after Guantanamo, he... That's it. He grew into a man. You see the pictures of him as a boy, and then you see him as a man, and you think all of that happened to him while he's held in this abusive situation. And the really amazing thing was that the older brothers all became like father figures to him. And nobody in Guantanamo remains in one place. They keep moving around from cell to place to cell to place. So even the close relationships you build with people, they only last a few months, and then after that, it's just gone. Mm -hmm. I was going to say that uh, it's in these times that a lot of the times when you recall back to the events that took place, you only remember the highs and the lows at times. Um, everything else kind of just fades away. So what were some of the more memorable things um, if we fast forward now to Guantanamo? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, after a year of being in this place, as I said, I was I'm sent to Guantanamo. And most of the time in Guantanamo, they put me in solitary confinement. So only for a short period of time at the end, I'm with other prisoners. But here I'm in a in a in a room. And in that room, that room is like, uh, there's a cell. The cell is made of metal. It's made of kind of um, metal mesh like that. So you can see through, but it's going to be like that. Um, and there's a, there's a soldier or soldiers watching you 24-7. I mean, even when you go to the bathroom, I come up a lot. I mean, like all the time. Uh, so what we would do is just put up a, like a, a little sheet halfway through and we use the bathroom and whatever. But it is kind of, of course, it's, it's, it's humiliating. There's no doubt about that. Um, but we have to remember, again, go back to the stories of our prophets and the Sahaba and understand that they were humiliated and they, were, uh, they attempted to disgrace them. Uh, uh, but all that happened, So the Iman rose and the reliance of Allah uh, increased. For me, uh, I'd say there's several different things memorable. I have to say, um, there's, so many, there's so many things that come to mind, but... One of them is just a simple thing. In Guantanamo, there's lots of animals. Uh, some you see, some you don't as a prisoner, but they exist as tarantulas, snakes, um, giant moths that big. Um, and one day, there's loads of crabs. So this crab walked into my cell, right? And it's, my immediate reaction was, oh my God, from the side of my eye, I think that's a tarantula or something. So my immediate reaction is to get a cup and to throw water at this crab. It was a crab. It turned out to be a crab, not a tarantula. And, but it's quite big and it started to, instead of doing what I wanted it to do, which was to get away, it started to scoop up the water and drink it. And I thought, SubhanAllah, look at that. I, I, I see something as a weapon and this, crack, this, this creature sees it as a gift from Allah. 
And think about this, brothers, right? Think about this carefully. There's a process used on many, not on me, it wasn't used on me, but it's used on many prisoners. And it's called waterboarding. Waterboarding is a technique of torture that was first used against Muslims and Jews in Spain. When they sort of took back over, when the Christians took back over Spain, they started to use this as a way to find out who's still a Muslim, because Islam had been destroyed there now by the 1500s. But they were still trying to uh, uh, investigate to see who's, the, who's, a, who's a secret Muslim. So one technique they would have to see is the guys a light open at Fajr time. Or they go and ask the kids, you know, does your father bow down? Does he say Allah Akbar? And one of the techniques was they, and they would do this mostly to women, is they would tie them down onto like a bench, tie their hands, tie their legs, tie their head, and pour water over their eye, over their noses and their mouth so that they feel coming constantly like gallons and gallons. And make sure that the mouth is continue gets filled with water. So you feel like you're drowning. This in Spanish was called tortura del agua, the torture of the water. This was a technique used against many of the prisoners. It was uh, sanctioned or allowed by uh, the, the legal authorities in the United States of America against uh, several prisoners. And eventually when Obama came into power, he, he admitted that we were torturing people. Uh, Japanese soldiers who waterboarded American GIs in World War II were prosecuted and convicted for war crimes and then executed. That's how serious it is. Um, but this waterboarding technique was one of the numerous techniques uh, used against many of the prisoners. And as I said, if you go back to its history, it's actually connected to, 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 to Muslims. Um, and the other thing I'd like to, you know, so I want you to kind of think about, again, because I'm talking to people in, in the United States, is that, you, you know, if you read the history of slavery, uh, and I don't know, the story of Alex Haley's roots or whatever it is, even though some people say it's not, it's, it's fiction, but we know that a significant number of the prisoners that were taken from West Africa to America were Muslims. And they were taken by force. And they were taken in chains and they were taken across the Atlantic and they were taken to America. That's what happened to us. The majority of us were, Muslim, we were all Muslims. We were taken in chains uh, and we were taken to the Americas, a place we'd never been before. And the majority of the prisoners you would describe as black, maybe not you know, African black, but even then there was many prisoners they took from, uh, from Africa and from Asia and so forth. So there's something kind of in the history. And the, so, in terms of when we used to converse with a lot of the black soldiers and tell them this, they'd feel very uncomfortable, very, very uncomfortable. And explain to them, how can you partake in something that you know is a result of you coming to this place and being forced. In fact, many of you would find that you originally, you were probably Muslims. Many of you were originally probably, and to make you contend with this thing right now here in front of you, that you're watching our abuse, that you're partaking in our abuse, you are a part of our abuse. Um, so, as I said, somewhat very uncomfortable, but as a result of that, some of them became Muslims, some of them left the military, some of them started to speak out against Guantanamo, um, and some of them said, it's just my job. Uh, and others actually were happy to partake in the abuse. Uh, and just as, you know, you can watch uh, was it Django Unchained? Unchained? Yeah, Django Unchained. Watch that and you'll know there's, there's one side and there's another side. Let's just put it that way. There are people who are happy to be part of that uh, and understand that, uh, you know, uh, I've now been assimilated. But those whose hearts were open, you know, I have to tell you, some of those American soldiers, they were lifeline. Very, very decent, very good people. People would bring, bring little bits of chocolate, uh, little bits of news, sometimes a piece of fish that they'd caught in, in, in the ocean, little acts of humanity. And because of that, I have to tell you, and majority of the prisoners would say this, we don't hate America. That's the one reason, because of those decent soldiers. And whatever America may have done to us, they didn't do to us what they did to, or what, what China is doing to the Uyghurs, and that is forcing them to convert forcing them to renounce their faith, forcing them to drink alcohol, forcing them to eat pork. Um, the Uyghur brothers who were with us, they say, Alhamdulillah, that we weren't sent to China 
and that we were sent to, to America, even though both were abusive. That, I think that is absolutely shocking to hear, subhanAllah. That people, Uyghur Muslims were actually grateful to be sent to, like, wow, Guantanamo Bay. Just, wow, that's, wallah, that's crazy. SubhanAllah. May Allah punish wrongdoers immensely. So before we get back to the, uh, the, the more memorable parts, and the Iman boosters and all of that, I want to ask a question. So you said you don't hate America or... Would you say you don't hate America or Americans? What's your view on the American government? Because they seem highly hypocritical. Yeah, I mean, when I say I don't hate, I don't hate, I don't, I don't come out hating all of America. Uh, I know American history very, very well. One of my, one of the biggest influences in my life is Malcolm X. You know, so I, I say that I am not a, I am a victim of America, like he says. I'm literally a victim of America, and. Uh, if you see a poem I've written in, in custody, it's called Indictment USA. I, I, it's a 52-verse rhyming poem of the United States of America, what it's done, how it was born out of, um, what it did to, to Native Americans, what it did to uh, black people, what it's done around the world. So I'm, no, I'm under, under no illusion about what America has done or what it's capable of. So when I speak about Mer America, really it's about, it's about the experiences of those who are decent people, whether it's the advocates, whether it's the soldiers, or whether it's other Americans that I meet. Uh, who I know, and again, as I said, Shakur himself, he lived in America, he said, this was not the America that I knew, that I'd experienced. So it was based on that ignorance that had become like this. But when America, and just to give you an idea, right, uh, I'll give you an example. I was there when America invaded and attacked Afghanistan, and thousands died, and they didn't give a damn about the numbers, right? The Taliban, maybe you agree with them, disagree with them, it doesn't really matter. When the Taliban took over Afghanistan, not a shot was fired in Kabul. They didn't fire a shot. So you have to ask yourself one question. Who should you follow? America or the Taliban when it comes to this particular issue? The Prophet ﷺ, when he took Mecca, it was bloodless. When Umar ibn Khattab took Jerusalem, it was bloodless. When the Crusaders captured uh, Jerusalem, the, the, the streets ran knee-high in blood of not just Muslims, but of Jews, of animals even. So the important part that we understand this is that I am under no illusion. America is the most violent country in the history of mankind. There is no more violent country than America, not even the Mongols. And I say this because the Mongols killed people over hundreds of years. America can, can do that in that number in one day, and it has done. Nagasaki, Hiroshima, Vietnam, Korea, Afghanistan, Iraq, etc., etc. But I still try to look at to see that amongst Americans, there are people who are deeply ashamed, deeply ashamed of its history and are trying to kind of right that wrong. But like I said, um, my, ref my refusal to give in to hatred, because hatred, what it does, it just eats you from inside, right? Yeah. But it doesn't mean I'm, 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 I'm unaware. I'm very aware. And in fact, probably more politically aware now than I've ever been about America and indeed Britain, because Britain is the, let's say, the, the great grandfather of America. Yeah. And Britain's role in uh, colonization, destruction of, of indigenous peoples around the world, not just Muslims, but indigenous people around the world, the intrinsic racism that exists within them. Uh, I, I'm a subject to, to myself. I've, I've seen it firsthand. I've fought neo-Nazis on the streets in Britain who carry British flags, and then they come along and say to me, if you're British, you need to give your loyalty to us. And they're seeking my loyalty while they've got a gun put to my head. Uh, my loyalty isn't to your flag. My loyalty is to my experience of this country that is good, not to your flag. It's a beautiful answer. It's a very beautiful answer, subhanAllah. And it's very important that, that Muslims, and just frankly everyone, they understand the history of how we got here now. Especially when you play into the intricacies of what America is doing in other places and what America believes to be true and, and what they proclaim. Because a lot of the time they will proclaim that they go into these countries, they do these atrocities in the name of, of freedom and liberation of these people. But people don't actually know the truth behind it. So we see, you know, one of the things that people need to understand, America itself was, was born out of rebellion. America was a, was a colony of Britain and it rebelled. And as far as Britain was concerned, 
everybody of, of, of all of the, all of the colonists uh, were terrorists. George Washington and his entire movement were terrorists. Britain burnt down the White House twice. British soldiers were that twice in its history. So we can't pretend like politics is not important and the one person's one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. That's happened throughout history. Um, there's a time when Ronald Reagan, you know, president of the United States of America, described the Mujahideen of Afghanistan, including Yunus Khalis, who gave his bayah, his pledge to the Taliban off in 2006. Um, he said that these guys are like our founding fathers. They are brave warriors because they were fighting against the Soviet Union. So yesterday's Mujahid is today's terrorist. So we should be very clear is that you will not determine who I uh, uh, deem to be a freedom fighter or not. You will not do that through your politics and we'll see through it and point it out. It's beautiful, subhanAllah. That, that truly is beautiful. So I'm trying to go, I guess, back and forth between the more like political stuff and the more like beautiful image. So let's hear some more some more beautiful stories that come up. Um, okay, so there's one really lovely one. It's, it's uh, again it happens in Guantanamo every day, it's still happening. And that is precisely at Maghrib time. At Maghrib time, what do we do? We hear the Adhan, or someone calls the Adhan, and we prepare for prayer, right? And that's no different in Guantanamo. Guantanamo brothers are in blocks, different blocks. So some blocks uh, are close to one another and they can hear. Uh, others, they can't. So each place will call its own adhan and there'll be a mu'adhan in each different part. And it's beautiful because the mu'adhan could be from Chad, could be from Egypt, could be from Mauritania, Pakistan, uh, a Chinese Uyghur. It doesn't really matter. But it could, And the imam will be based upon where he is in proximity in his cell because you can't move cells. So the imam could be a, a young kid or it could be an old man from Afghanistan. It's just, there's a beauty about that. But at that time at Maghrib, the Adhan is called, but so is at the same time. And they're not doing it. The US military does this anyway at sunset. They call it, I think the taps. Um, they play the US national anthem. And it's played on giant loudspeakers around, around the island, right? And there's a huge flag, uh, in the middle of the island and the soldiers are required by military protocol to wherever the wherever they are they must face the flag and raise their hand and salute the flag so one of the prisoners is an australian prisoner he said look at this i remember the day he said it was just so he said look two groups of people both saluting the object of their devotion one group the one group interested in military does that the other group does faces the east and does that allah akbar and then he said, I wonder which of those two groups is the most sincere. Right. Which one is doing it because he's doing it out of his heart and which one is doing it because he has to and thinks it's a stupid thing. It's and, and it's obvious. It was obvious because a lot of the soldiers wouldn't do it. They said, I ain't doing that. Forget that. <laughs> nobody's watching. I ain't doing it. Right. But if nobody's watching it, I ain't doing it. The Muslim what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hadith That ihsan, excellence, higher than Islam, higher than Iman, excellence, is that you worship Allah as if you see him, knowing that you can't see him, but he sees you. You know, you, 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 you don't know uh, um, who's watching and who's not watching, but you know Allah's watching. And so you see, again, there's a contrast a spiritual contrast between one group and the, and the other. And, and uh, you know, it was these little things. Somebody just picks it up. The guy who said it was a revert, he, he didn't know much about Islam at all. He'd been picked up and caught in the middle of Afghanistan, but he just picked up this thing. And I thought, wow, look at how powerful that is. SubhanAllah. That being said, um, uh, today, you know, th these were all nice stories and all, but I have I have more of a serious question and I don't want to, you know, completely go 180, but uh, we live in a society today where, you know, people hear all your problems, they, they understand that the things that they deem as problems are not really problematic at all whatsoever, right? Um, people have become soft today in terms of coping and dealing with, uh, you know, the daily struggles of their lives. So what is your advice for our brothers and sisters watching to really toughen up mentally. Not everyone can go through exactly what you went through. And you know, may Allah protect us from that. And may Allah bless you for enduring all the trials and tribulations that you've gone through. Um, and all of those similar to you. I mean, but what can people do? And particularly when you got out, how did you deal with the PTSD, 
the daily anxiety, the, the mental troubles and all that? You know, there's this, there's this, um, uh, the Prophet ﷺ taught us that if we see a people afflicted by something, that we should say, Alhamdulillah, we should praise Allah that you weren't afflicted by that. So, you know, you see something that happens to people. There's still people, in, there's still 39 brothers in Guantanamo. And so I praise Allah that I'm not one of them. I, I praise Allah that I'm not one of them because my, that's it. Any, any, any joy I had left in life, I would never have had it from mm. my family at least. There'd be a different type of joy. There's another kind of joy, but it's very, it's, it costs too much. And I'm not going to say nobody can take it. Everybody can take it because the difference between us and, uh, and those who gay say don't believe is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, that Allah doesn't test a soul with more than it can bear. Now you don't know what that is until you've been tested. And it can, I, as I said, I know brothers who've been in prison for 15, 16, 17 years. I've met pr prisoners because of the work I do with CAGE. I've met people who've been in prison for 21, 22, 23 years and seen them to come out to lead revolutions against the very people who had them in prison. Like lead the revolution. Uh, so you just don't know. That you, the soul doesn't know what will transpire tomorrow. You just don't know. What you have to do is have your reliance on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's what the most important thing. Learn what it is to have tawakkul. Learn what it is to put, if, tie your camel, do whatever is your humanly possible. But ultimately, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who's going to decide your fate. And have pure trust, husn al that feel good, have only good thoughts about Allah and trust him. And even if you lose something in this dunya, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told you so many times again and again and again, that you will be rewarded in Akhirah manyfold. And we all know, in the end, you know what it is about. What are we prepared for, for, for death? I've seen so many people die in my life. Some in, literally in a battlefield, some by bombs, some by natural death, some by an accident. I buried my young sister who was six years old, who was two years old. My mother, when I was six years old, um, one after the other. Death is a and I say this not to say there's anything special about me. You go to the Muslim world or even the, the, the developing world, people dying all the time. And you'll find poor people generally, though not always, always have a connection to something because they know how trials and tribulations start from the day we're born and they don't end till we, till we, till we end. So they're connected to them. And we live a life of luxury, a life of instant gratification, a life of whenever we want something, we can get it straight like that if it's not there within the next day or the next hour we're complaining um and we lost sabr we lost patience and i include this in myself in the west you go to a muslim country where none of those things you take for granted and automatically you have to step back a few years few decades uh, in cases and it makes you reliant on on allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, rather than uh the arrogance of humankind in which that we think we can have every single thing without a cost um so really, my brothers and sisters, that, that's what I would say, and sisters who are watching, is that reliance on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala needs to come back and we need to build our strength. And that will make strong believers. And, and we need that strength because tests ahead are, are coming that will be greater than Guantanamo. SubhanAllah. The entire thing has made me very specious, to be completely honest. Um, SubhanAllah. Um, and just to add on to the point, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there, there's a hadith. Uh, I don't know if it's hadith Qudsi or just hadith Prophet, but it says that Jannah is veiled with hardships and trials and that Jahannam is, is veiled with desires. So literally, if you're living a life of pure comfort and pure contentment, and not contentment in the sense that you're content with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but pure comfort and contentment in the sense that, oh, you know, I want pizza, I'll order pizza, I'll be here in 30 minutes, you know, or something like that. And you're not concerned with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah is not testing you. You have to question where your destination is going to be because that hadith, it tells you that hell is veiled with desires and, 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 and this kind of comfort. But Jannah is veiled with that hardship. The hardship that uh, Brother Muazza mentioned that the, the prophets endure, that the sahaba endure, that the righteous and the sabiqun and the, the forerunners had to endure. SubhanAllah. Yeah, that, that's you know, exactly that's exactly true. The, the, you know, you know, a beautiful, simple, beautiful hadith connected to what we're talking about. A sijn, a dunya sijn al mu'min wa jannatul kafir. That this prison, this life, this life is a prison for the believer. 
he's he's imprisoned and he wants to be able to prepare for the greater life and it is a garden of paradise for the disbeliever so everything the disbeliever seeks it's all in this dunya and he wants everything here and now and when that's over his life is over and our life is yet is just about to start subhanallah it's wallah it's so beautiful even one of my students the other day the message me asking this question how do you respond to a person who says that all oh, the non-muslims have such a great life and muslims are suffering i'm like well what do you define a good life as that what they have money they have fame, that fortune they have whatever for 80 years and then and then they die do you think that stuff brings them contentment do you think there aren't these people that that actually hate their lives or themselves or they can't sleep at night and you have the muslims who have very little but they they have that tawakkul, they have that, they are Islam, and because of that, their life is beautiful. So let me tell you something, that, you brought that up, and that's a really important thing. So there is a numerous soldiers, numerous American soldiers, uh, let alone those who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, but those who served in Guantanamo. I kid you not, many of the soldiers had to go to something called combat stress, right? We're in the cages, we're tortured, we're about, away from our families, but the soldier is required to go to combat stress. You know what Allah That they, you know, when somebody does dhulm upon themselves and it hurts them in teenies, you know, they oppress themselves. Allah says, we didn't oppress them, they oppress themselves. How do you oppress yourself? By taking part in something that your soul knows you're doing wrong. That you're torturing people, you're abusing them, you're keeping away them from, your, from their families. They did nothing to you. You have no proof against them. You don't even know what they're supposed to have done to you. And you brought them to this place. Now you, the soldier who signed up, you were supposed to be a, an inheritor of the brave warriors defending America and all of that stuff that's supposed to be true about you. Um, you're in the gym all the time. And here you are. You've got men who are 100 years old, who've got hearing aids. that you take the hearing away, away from him because you say this could be used as a weapon. You've got people, double amputees, who lost their legs. These are brave men who fought the Soviets at a time when America supported the Mujahideen. This guy's left both his, lost both his legs on a landmine against the Soviets, and he doesn't complain. But you take his legs away because you say he could use the, there's a, as a stick to, as, uh, to beat somebody with. You've got children here, 12, 13, 14 years old. And you've got others who are married men with kids, and you're threatening them with children, with pictures of their children, and you're doing all this to them, you think this is not going to go back and haunt you? That's going to... So several American soldiers committed suicide, including some who were in Guantanamo at the time, others afterwards, some went on to become uh, domestic abusers, some went on to harm themselves. The American female soldier, I told you, told, told me she took a shahada, and what a, what a story she told me. She said, that, and I know this, is that abuse against females in, in the military is so rife, it's so common, it's rape, it is, is, it, we know this as soldiers because some of the females used to come to seek solace in us because they wouldn't trust um, the others. We, when we'd look at the soldier, we'd keep down because we'd keep your eyes down and don't try to ogle, the, you know, the, that's, the, that's what Islam teaches us. The, the Bible teaches that, but they know people doesn't, don't care about the Bible or anything else. And so when they talk to us, one of the reasons why this sister was, she said, you know, when I, I was turned to, to, to different things, I turned to boys, I turned to alcohol, I turned to uh, drugs, everything except faith. But you guys turned to, you guys abandoned everything except faith. Uh, and uh, so, you know, when people are involved in that kind of abuse, there's one guy, he called me, he was an interrogator for that same young boy, Omar Khadr, I spoke of. When I spoke to him, I swear by Allah, he was crying on the phone because he'd now joined the Veterans Against the War Movement and he was speaking against what he'd done himself. And he was crying because he was, his nickname was the King of Torture. That's by his own colleagues. So we come out, alhamdulillah, Iman raised, belief strong, yes, we've suffered, but we're not gonna, my, my heart is clean. The prisoner's heart is clean. These guys' hearts are blackened and, and uh, what a, what a jaheem that is, to have, what, a, what a hell that is to live in this dunya. And, and so, yeah. Unfortunately, and I say this gravely, unfortunately, mm -hmm. 
coming up on an hour and we're going to have to end. But I pray to Allah that Allah allows us to do this many times over and Allah allows us to become a series in which we speak the truth or more so you inform us about the truth so that we can spread it to the youth, inshallah, so that the upcoming generations can look to stop these abominations and truly make a good change, inshallah. I mean, it's absolute pleasure for me it's to really just speak in this way and not to speak in, in the way that I speak in a lot of places. It's a, there aren't that many places that we can do this properly as Muslims and, and feel confident enough and to bring out that, those aspects of our deen that are so important, that kept us alive, that, keep, that, that, that are the purpose of our life. Um, so any place where that can be done, inshallah, I'll be more than happy to do that and actually even try to bring some brothers who would never speak to the media, but they'll speak to you guys because the, 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 uh, and I'm talking about brothers, like I mentioned, who 14, 15 years make me look like a child in my experience. So hopefully, inshallah, I'll bring some of those guys to you. SubhanAllah. I have one last question for you. Um, it's kind of like a two-part question, but uh, after all the years of your life that you've lived, all the wisdom that you've acquired, um, what is number one, your favorite hadith, or at least one of, and number two, your favorite ayah from the Quran? Well, let me figure some, first begin with my favorite ayah. Though there are many, it's impossible, but it's one I quote. مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ الرِّجَالٌ صَدَقُوا مَا أَهْدَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ فَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ قَضَى نَحْبَهُ وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ يَنْتَظِرْ وَمَا بَدَلُوا تَبْدِيلًا From the believers are those who were true to the covenant with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Amongst those are those who have gone off and are now shaheed. And there are those who are still waiting and they didn't change one iota. And perhaps my favorite hadith is a very short hadith. كُنْ فِي الدُّنْيَا كَغَرِيبٍ وَعَابِرِ السَّبِيلِ Stay in this dunya as a stranger or one who's passing through a jinn. MashaAllah. Allahumma mubarak, brother Muazzam. And with that being said, uh, is there anything else uh, that's on your mind or any question for us? No, I just, you'll like, you know, I, 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 when you guys contacted me, uh, as I said, I speak to lots and lots and lots of people I can't even tell you, um, famous and whatever. But when I saw you guys, I told my team I'm speaking to these young brothers uh, in the US and this is what motivates me. This, not the other stuff, not the big CNN and uh, big uh, actors and actresses, whatever it is, all the big stage stuff. This is what motivates me, you guys, because you're the next generation and seeing the youth, seeing the zeal, the love, the care, the passion that seems to be lost in so many other places, you guys have got a You've got a battle in front of you, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I pray, equips you physically, morally, uh, emotionally, financially, in every possible way to be able to, to take that on and to carry the deen in every nook of cranny in this, in this dunya, because in the end, that's وَمَا عَلَيْنَا إِلَّا الْبَلَاغِ Allahumma ameen. Allahumma ameen. Allahumma ameen. Right. Please send the list. We'll have every single one of them on, inshallah, and make this a, a huge part of the channel. Jazakumullah khair. May Allah elevate you and bless you immensely. This has been a huge honor for myself, and I'm sure Fayed and the viewers as well. Again, guys, check the description and support the cause, inshallah. Look forward to many more episodes speaking about this very, very important topic and topics related to it. And with that being said, if there's no final words from the, the ikhwan here... Allahumma atina fi dunya hasana wa fi al-akhirati hasana wa kina adab al-nar. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I think there's another thing too. It's, it's the perseverance aspect too. Like we're more willing to stick through with things that we set out with an intention. It's impossible to have empathy for others if you're not patient. So my love, bless you for that. First of all, I agree with the fact that the whole thing you said about friends where it's like if, if they're affecting you more than you're affecting them, then you should probably get some new friends. You want to be investing in stocks, shares, bonds. You want to be investing in crypto because there's this thing called inflation, which means every year that passes by, the value of a dollar goes lower and lower and lower. And the reason being is because they're printing more money, right? That's why money is haram. At least the paper money is haram. Provided that you're actually there and you're being a good father and the mother's being a good mother, best conditions. And behind the mic, Hamza, Andreas, Zortzis, we will go in with our final three with brother Angel, inshallah. It's not just a responsibility on you, it's a responsibility on all the children, especially your father. In our private area is very elastic. 
and yeah if you go too fast the skin will literally crease up into like the edge of like the little clipper things and you will literally clip your skin you don't want to be on youtube or the internet or anything that that amount of time but it's it's the the fact is that's what we're doing 